Hello everyone and welcome to this next episode of the Veterinary Thought Exchange podcast. As always at the Veterinary Thought Exchange we start by asking what are you thinking and this week We're going to be talking to a good friend of mine and colleague, Inga, about her really interesting journey in the veterinary profession. And then we're going to go on and chat a little bit about block cats and the challenges that they have for us in practice. Just to introduce myself, I'm Scott. I'm one of the founders of VTX and I'm a specialist in small animal internal medicine. And as always, we are joined by our wonderful podcast producer, Karen, who as uh, we say now, is here to keep me on track. Yeah. How How is the lockdown treating you? Um... Um, <laughs> what was that? It was just the facial spritz, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> Have you never, do you never, do you never spritz? In the middle of a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um... <laughs> It's minty and it mattifies. Lovely. Inga, hi, how are you doing? Hi, I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Good. Good, no, really good. And I just, we're we're so pleased that you're um, able to join us and, and really excited to chat today. So I just, I really just wanted to start by maybe asking you a little bit about your um, career in veterinary medicine, how that kind of started, um, and maybe just a little bit how you have come to be doing the exciting things that you're doing today? I graduated from Glasgow University in 2000 and went straight into small animal practice where I've really pretty much remained since. Um, I worked in Fife until about 2012 before moving through to Ayrshire and when I came to Ayrshire I started doing some out of hours work as well as my traditional small animal work and in 2015 I was just becoming a little bit um, tired in my career, I guess, and everything felt a little bit repetitive. I've never done the kind of year out, the travelling, the other things that you see people doing, and I just wanted to tick some of those boxes off and got involved in a couple of volunteering projects, which initially was something I thought, I'll do, I'll get out of my system, that'll be it. And it's kind of grown from there and become a bit of a, a, bit of a habit um, that's now becoming a big big part of my working life and has taken me a few other places as well really. What was the first abroad trip that you did? What what started that kind of part of your journey then? Sure so um, I, I researched a few different charities and um, find charities that I thought were in line with what I wanted to do and you do have to be a little bit careful in all aspects of charity and volunteering as to what the what the goal is and what the purpose is behind the charity to make sure that it's um reputable and everything is is going to the correct direction so the first trip I did was was with Worldwide Veterinary Services and that was in 2015 I went and spent a month in South India basically on a project that was teaching other veterinary surgeons so teaching local veterinary surgeons um, aspects related to humane dog population management with the overall goal of trying to control the rabies situation um, to try to have a, a healthier dog population, to try to control the dog numbers, and ultimately to control rabies both in dogs, which are the reservoir, and in people. Okay, and then did uh, and obviously you kind of got the 
I don't know if it's the right phrase, but you kind of got the bug for it, then you just wanted to do more after that or? Yeah, I really did. Um, I mean, it was a tremendous trip. It was, I was quite anxious about it at first. Um, I was quite anxious traveling by myself, going out my comfort zone sort of work-wise, whether I would be good enough to, to teach other people and what I could bring to it. And obviously being in a country that culturally and um, veterinary-wise, you know, equipment and facilities and things was, was completely out of my comfort zone. And strangely, it's been one of the most comfortable work situations I've probably ever been in, mm. where despite all the challenges, it was such a refreshing way to work and seemed so, so valuable. Uh, so I, I knew immediately that I wasn't just going to go once. Um, so the following year, they opened a new centre in Thailand and I went there. I've went back to India several more times, um, different centres that they have. I think I've been about five times in total now. And then sort of ventured onto other projects and went to Nepal and kind of hooked up with another charity um, that I'm very close to, um, Himalayan Animal Rescue Trust or HART, doing similar projects there. Um, and that was all really set up through connections from people that I met on that on that first trip. And correct me if I'm wrong, you you drag your husband with you as well? <laughs> I, I have I have done a couple of times. So yeah. my husband's non-veterinary. Um and also used to be, but it's a lot better, but used to be very, very squeamish. Uh, so he's really um, supported me tremendously through that. So when we went to Thailand, they had a dog shelter adjacent to the training centre. So he volunteered in the uh, dog shelter and I volunteered in the veterinary teaching centre. Uh, so that worked really well. Um, and then he actually came and did a bit more hands-on stuff with me in India as well. So, so he's thankfully caught the same bug, or else it might be a problem. <laughs> no, I think that I think that's really I think that's really cool to be able to, particularly because he's non-veterinary, and and just to be able to kind of do that together. I think yeah. that's really really fun. I suppose you were kind of doing this um, reverse gap year, um, just a bit a bit later in life. How does that turn into basically? becoming your whole thing now or in some ways infiltrating your life in a much more permanent way? Yeah well I've, I've just been trying quite hard to find a way to balance it. Um, I think one of the reasons for not doing this previously which is probably what hinders a lot of people that, that might want to do it is finding the time, getting the time off work, you know fitting it in with with other other commitments obviously um, and as I, as I realised I wanted to do more of that I've tried to kind of find ways to make I guess trying to find solutions to the hurdles rather than reasons to not to not do it. So I did a couple of things for for that purpose. Um, my work, my uh, two jobs at the, at the time when I started doing this were hugely supportive and gave me extended leave to to do the trips a couple of times. Then I, I realised I wanted a longer one. I wanted to go away for three months, and I realised that was kind of unachievable. That I did leave my jobs and have a, a full kind of three month block. And then I came back and started uh, welcoming, really just for having that control over my, my time more than anything, being able to take other, other sort of holidays. Um, after kind of a few years, through connections that I've made um, and wanting to do a little bit more in Nepal where there really isn't any, any training. So there isn't any practical training for veterinary students or veterinary surgeons in Nepal on a regular basis. Many of them travel to India to get that training, which, because of things are travels expensive um, and it's a developing country, for them to travel to the WBS courses in India, it's like a three-day journey. So it's, wow. it's a big commitment for them to do that. Mm. So another 
colleague approached me about actually setting up our own organisation to set up training um, options in Nepal, which just now we don't have anything permanent there, but the last uh, four years I've visited Nepal and set up a, a you know, sort of two-week training for veterinary students to give them some aspects of practical training that their course is lacking. So that's now becoming a more permanent thing that I obviously want to continue on and develop and if, if possible grow it to, you know, to be more often more students, more vets, things like that. But everything everything has to start with, with baby steps. So so you've actually so um you, you actually have founded an organization? Yes, yes. So we've set up an organization which is called the One Health Foundation and we've set that up as an, an NGO basically, so a, a non-government charitable organization. Um, and at the moment we're working in collaboration with other charities based in Nepal and also with veterinary veterinary institutions. So the, the veterinary training facilities, we work alongside them. Yeah, amazing. Um, and then the other thing, the other layer or the other string to your bow is that you are now, I can't remember which stage of the master's you're at, but you've done something with something in Nepal. Tell us about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so I, I hadn't quite had the full midlife crisis yet, okay, so yeah. I decided <laughs> to, go the, to go the full hog. Um, so <laughs> that, this kind of this kind of came about when, when we were talking about setting up uh, the One Health Foundation. And my, my colleague who, who kind of started the ball rolling with that, she had uh, done a distance learning master's um, in One Health. So we were obviously chatting a lot about these these sort of One Health concepts, which is quite a buzzword mm -hmm. now. Um, and everybody's kind of talking about One Health. And basically it's a way of looking at, at overall health. So how everything is, is linked and interconnected between human health, um, animal health and our mm. ecosystem health. Um, so I was trying to look at ways that I could in some way validate myself to be um, you know, worthy of, of setting up this organisation and, and teaching other people. And I came across another course which was available distance learning through the University of Edinburgh, which is a conservation medicine master's that I'm hopefully just about to, to complete. Um, so again, that was good. It was finding a way of going back into study that I could do distance learning um, remotely. Everything's online. So when I was working, when I was traveling, I could log in whenever I wanted to, whenever it suited me. Albeit that had to be quite a lot because it's a pretty full on course, but it meant that I was in control of the, the course timings myself, really, that I could study when it suited me um, and it had a lot of flexibility. So I've just finished um, my, well, I'm just writing up my, my research project for my, my final project, which I looked at um, disease spillover events, which is again, is, is pretty current just now. Um, and I looked at uh, distemper in the free roaming dog population surrounding uh, one of the national parks, Chituan National Park, National Park in Nepal, um, because there is some concerns from other areas of the world about disease spillover from distemper in dogs to large carnivores um, and small carnivores within the park. So particularly interest um, in tigers and, and top predator carnivores. So did a project in that, which was a really nice kind of way for me to bridge the gap from my small animal work and the dog charity stuff I've done to that sort of new niche of conservation and, and wildlife that I'm getting a bit more interested in. How did you find, so the um 
going back to stuff I'm not saying you're old by the way I'm just saying like <laughs> oh god you know, here he goes here he goes so <laughs> I um when I like when when I was studying for like my diploma exams you know I did my residency you know after I'd been in practice for a, a bit of time I definitely found yeah. it much harder to study when I was 30 versus when I was 18 like it was easy when you were 18 right so I mean my question my question yeah. is how did you find getting back into that mindset of having to yeah. do that yeah well it's kind of interesting and, and something that we touched on before because I'm having to write a, a reflective piece you know about my whole kind of university experience and I'm maybe the flip maybe the flip reverse of you a little bit I think because when okay. I first went into it it was so, so daunting um I had never you know written proper essays with referencing and things when I because I am a bit I am a bit older I'm like 20 years <laughs> qualified as a vet and we did things really differently then you know we didn't have everything literally like just chalkboards chalk, chalkboards yeah. on a stool <laughs> um, no one had ever written a paper back then it was hard no, no. <laughs> actually initially for me the, the technology was really daunting um and once I got set up on that, and actually quite a few people on, on my course had had that kind of gap in, in learning, um, I was you know a little bit less intimidated with that. But I I kind of found my first experience of uni quite difficult for a number of reasons. Um, I did go from being one of these people you know that, that sort of excelled at school and, and did well to finding a vet school degree very very difficult, and I. I feel as if I kind of fell behind and never quite caught back up. And it's really probably taken me 20 years to ever even reconsider putting myself back in that situation again. So I was quite afraid of, you know, it, it not going well, afraid of failure, things like that. And I think actually for me, the gap, although I'm sure I've had to work really hard to bridge that gap in learning, I've had a, a very different experience. And, and I think to look back on it all probably overall a more a more positive experience and um, just from a confidence point of view which is, oh, is actually good. really nice yeah that's is it, I think it, well it's true though but I think we all feel that kind of I suppose that imposter type <laughs> feeling you know yeah well I mean I but then I, I I still feel that every single day in in different ways and um but that's nice actually then finding it was more um what I meant really from my comment before was that it just the the kind of process of remembering yeah. stuff was just easier but maybe yeah. that's just the amount of alcohol that I've consumed over the I don't know you know other things yeah. other things um but yeah you know you just kind of rolled out of bed when you were younger and just got on with it and it didn't matter yeah. as much and it I think it matters there's a different kind of you know I always remember at vet school like I you know I was really young when I started I was only just 18 and we used to sit up the back you know and <laughs> oh probably, no you were one and, of them <laughs> and all and all the and all the matures, the people that had done a degree already, they all sat down at the front and actually listened. It was, but it was divided like that, and and that mortifies me now. And and you could just see them at the front going, "Oh God, those lot at the back, they just roll out of bed and just like it just happens." And we're all really working really hard and paying a fortune to be here, and he's get he's getting it for free. What the hell is going on? You know what I mean? So. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of what I meant, I suppose. So yeah, definitely gives you perspective. I think. The, yes. You know, looking looking back, and you're, you're yeah. only ever where you are in your life, aren't you? So well, exactly. <laughs> that's very, yeah, that's very true. So where where are you? What's where are you at now? Then what's the next? What what what's happening now? <laughs> well, 
Well, my, my, my main focus just now is just to get my thesis submitted. That is like my sole purpose just now. So I've got about another three weeks to go and um, then the main part of that will be done. So that's that's my kind of big, big hurdle. Um, the charity kind of side of things, obviously, with the, the current coronavirus situation, um, we've been unable to, to sort of plan forward at all for, for travelling. Um, I'm due to do a, a sort of lockdown webinar for some some of the students in Nepal in a couple of weeks, so that might that might be an opportunity for something that we can develop a little bit in the in the interim until we can get get planning a wee bit more with that. Hopefully, once I'm I'm finished with my course, I'll have a bit more time to, to sort of spend and develop on that as well. And and I'm still still happily doing uh, my regular small animal work on the side of that that I still really enjoy. But hopefully, I can strike a balance and find a way to do both going forward did you did you ever imagine that this is what you would be doing with your veterinary degree not at all not at all um i mean part, part of me kind of wishes you know i had explored some of these things earlier in in, in life and part of me worries is it you know is, is it too is it too late to you know to make big changes like that and where i actually can go with it i mean part of my Part of my university course last year i've just been so so lucky the things that have things that these trips have taken me on i've been so ridiculously lucky um you know been in elephant sanctuaries i last year as part of the university course visited um Sariska tiger reserve in rajasthan and got taught about kind of wildlife management programs and actually practical classes on how to do uh, you know darting it's amazing. yeah it's kind of hard to see how that how that journey is just just unfolded um but I guess it does just go to show you know you can there's so many strings to our bow that you can you can explore um and so many opportunities you know that really um so I mean even if I if I don't change my whole direction it's, it's quite late to actually get into that type of work practically I'm hoping that I can at the very least introduce a lot of these topics into the the sort of education reach that we're doing to the Nepalese vet students because they you know, they live right on the national park. It's all on their doorstep, and there is a real need for you know good sort of collaboration between different professionals. You know between vets, biologists, ecologists to to have a good you know good care for their Sounds protected amazing. areas and and for the wildlife and the environment. So if I can even raise some, some interest and some awareness if that's my role and my contribution then I'll, I'll be happy with that if you had your time over would you do the veterinary would you do it all again the veterinary degree do you think it's given you what you thought it would give you would you do it again? yeah I, I would I, I definitely would like I said there's time there's times you know now that I'm kind of looking back to when I was studying you know the, the trauma of all the resets and things and everything I've put myself through but I'm one of these people I genuinely have I've always wanted to be a vet. I really can't. I kind of. I think, like a lot of us, it does really kind of define me, and I can't really imagine ever being anything else. Um, there's there's parts of any job that are hard, but my actual my fundamental job of being a vet, I do I do love. So the topic we've chosen to talk about this week is blocked cats and and sort of feline lower urinary tract disease generally and I, I don't know 
there was another reason, Inga, that you thought maybe this was a good topic. You've got some personal experience, is that right, of this condition? Yeah, so um, I had, I unfortunately don't have my little cats anymore. I had two cats, which, which made it to 17 years old. But um, my male cat suffered really badly with, um, you know, feline societies and feline or urinary tract disease for you know, a good kind of five or six years where it was quite relentless. And he did suffer with a blocked bladder twice. Um, and I went through sort of all the things, you know, we had a water fountain in the house, we had water bowls everywhere, all the different things. Um, at that time, it was the, the, you know, Feline Advisory Bureau. I was always trying to look things up and find out, you know, what the what the best things were. Um, and it would, I just thought it might be interesting to have a discussion about developments in this, the do's and don'ts. So for all those reasons, I think it is a really good topic to discuss and I think what's interesting you said there about frustration and I thinking back to when my career started and I worked at the PDSA in Edinburgh and we used to see truckloads of these cats there's there's many things that actually haven't changed and I was um before we had this chat today I was kind of reviewing making sure that I hadn't missed a paper from like last week you know that I've got always got that anxiety that I say something and then <laughs> someone just published something and said it the other way um so I think in, the way I kind of was looking at this is we're used to seeing these cats come in particularly as an emergency so that you get that typical phone call of that three you know three-year-old male neuter domestic short hair who um lives in a flat in Edinburgh and uh, you get the phone call at nine o'clock at night to say that this uh, cat has started to strain to to urinate um often they'll you know urinate in odd places so people will see them peeing on the bed or or trying to pee on the bed or pee in the bath or pee in the sink and all these sorts of things and so the first thing i thought we could maybe just sort of review is the the initial management of uh, that patient and i think we we do always consider these to be emergency presentations because if that cat is truly blocked then we need to be doing something about that pretty uh, quickly. Um, I think it goes without saying, and we'll not maybe delve into this too much, but it goes without saying that that if those animals are truly blocked and, and when they present, uh, they have a, a, a large firm bladder that, that is difficult to express, then we need to be doing something about that, usually um, considering the placement of uh, a urinary catheter. So I thought the maybe interesting discussion points there was what drugs we would use um, in that initial emergency management and also how long we keep that catheter in and that's always a bit of a point of debate um so i think that the the cornerstone of of what we need to to remember about these patients is the majority of cats that present with signs of feline lower urinary tract disease um or cats that have ultimately blocked the majority of them will have feline idiopathic cystitis so they will ultimately have these clinical signs because they're not having a good time in their heads (laughs) you know so a lot of that will be to do with and there's it's really amazing kind of um connections between what the cat's feeling uh uh, uh, the connection between the, the nervous system the brain and what's going on in the bladder some of those cats will have um, urethral plugs, which we know that kind of um, plugged up material, maybe with little bits of crystals in it. Some of those cats will have stones, but very, you know, very m- m- fewer of them will actually have actual urinary tract stones. And 
actually a very small number of them will have urinary tract infections. So the majority of them will have feline idiopathic cystitis. So the first thing that I think people do, which we absolutely shouldn't be doing in these cases, is giving antibiotics, particularly if you're going to put a urinary catheter in place, because actually being on antibiotics, which is almost certainly not necessary because they don't have infections, um, and then having a urinary catheter in place puts you at even higher risk of developing uh, secondary potentially quite complicated infections. So antibiotics don't need to be a part of the management of these cases. I think analgesia definitely does. So we we absolutely you know, want to give these cats pain relief, but we have to be quite careful about the pain relief that we're choosing as well. So opioid analgesia, definitely yes. Buprenorphine or methadone. I think we've got to be a bit careful about other analgesia like non-steroidals. So there's two reasons for that. These cats might be sick, they might be dehydrated, their kidneys might, might not be particularly well perfused. So we want to be careful about using non steroidals in that case. And obviously their kidneys might, might be having a little bit of trouble because of the fact that they're blocked at presentation. So for all those reasons, we don't want to be necessarily giving non steroidals at that stage. And actually, interestingly, there, there was a study in GFMS that showed giving non steroidals for the five days after being blocked, so giving Metacam home with the cat, didn't actually change how many of those cats re-blocked. So there's a question as to the need for continuing non-steroidals um, after a, a blocked event. The other drugs that people often think about giving in and around the time of presentation with these cats is drugs like prazosin and dantrium. So, or dant uh, you know, uh, drugs that will relax the urethra. And again, there's a real mixed picture here. So um, there really isn't conclusive data to say that giving a cat a course of prazosin or hypervase um, after a blocked event is going to change the likelihood of that cat blocking again. So potentially giving the prazosin when the cat has the, the urinary catheter in place to relax the urethra may be of benefit to that patient, but prolonged courses of prazosin or hypervase have not been demonstrated to change the longer term outcome uh, or recurrence of disease in those patients. The other thing I think is the question over how long to keep the urinary catheter in place. I don't know, Inga, from your own experience, how you kind of if there's anything that you help helps you make that decision or whether you keep it in for a set period of time. I don't know what your thoughts are. The first time that my, my cat blocked and I had to catheterize him, we had this sort of, you know, keep it in for three days or until the urine runs clear, um, which I which I did. The yeah. second time that he blocked, and I probably had more confidence to do this because it was my own cat. If it went wrong and there were repercussions, I unblocked him, flushed, pulled it out straight away. And took him home, and and he probably, yeah. in fairness, yeah. did better that time. But I I do have from a you know from a a veterinary point of view, being in charge of clients, I do have a real fear for clients' cats. It's it's really frustrating for owners, and and from a cost aspect, if they block again immediately, because I know there is some concern over the catheter being in for too long and causing you know more trauma, more you know, potential sort of stricture and things like that. Um, I have to, I did do both in in my my own cat tentatively but it, 
equally, you know, they, they were both equally successful and he was probably a lot happier and yeah. a lot less stressed with the, the second approach. And I think that's the, I think that's the point. I think it's got to be a very individual approach. I think what, what for me, the wrong thing to do is to make like a three day rule, a two day rule. Like that's, yeah. I don't think that's, um because if after 24 hours, the urine starts to run clear, like you say, and, and the cat's doing relatively well, then that's probably the time to pull the catheter out. If you leave the catheter in another 24 hours, the urine might start to be bloody again because potentially irritation that the catheter is causing. So I think there's there's definitely, um, it's got to be individualized. And sometimes if there's just a little plug at the end of the penis and that's all that it takes to clear the obstruction, like you say, I don't always leave a, you know, I don't always default leave a catheter in. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I think the, the decision about leaving a catheter in and for how long definitely has to be tailored to the um, the individual patient. But I think the things that we, going back to kind of, I suppose, what we do know in that in emergency situation, analgesia is important um, and that, but opioids, I think, are most appropriate at that stage. We need to be careful about using non-steroidals and also question the benefit of prolonged courses of non-steroidals antibiotics are a definite unnecessary um and um there's also a little bit of a, a debate about the how useful the muscle relaxing drugs like prazosin or hypervase are um but not saying that we wouldn't use those um i think the certainly for these repeat offenders cats that are blocking more than once or cats that don't quite fit into that typical feline idiopathic cystitis group so cats that are say over 10 years old you have to start thinking about investigating underlying causes you know so i think there's there is value in um looking for you know tumors uh, uh, stones and other things but typically these young cats that present for the first time with these cystitis type signs the majority of those cats have idiopathic disease and as you'll know, the the cornerstone of their treatment is really the longer term management, particularly environmental management. So taking their stress factors away from from the the environment that they live in, uh, and also thinking about things like um, potentially dietary modification, yeah. and you mentioned things like water consumption, um, you know, so other other elements of kind of day to day management. Yeah. So what was did what was the thing that was the kind of deal breaker for your cat do you think my cat was definitely um getting into scraps with with neighborhood cats um you know we, we actually lived um you know quite quite near to countryside with with access to fields and things he had loads of outdoor access he wasn't overweight and um, we had a cat flap that he could come freely i ended up changing and got one of the you know, like microchip cat flaps to make sure we weren't getting other cats you know visiting him but there was a regular spat with a with a neighbourhood cat, people we got on we got on quite well with, um, and I mean we were we were there for, for five or six years, and he continually had bouts of cystitis through that time, and I ended up with with him on a really long dietary change and, and long term nutraceuticals and kind of stress you know stress relieving um, supplements and things, but when I moved house, you know I assumed he was going to have this for life, and when I when I relocated through to Ayrshire. He never had cystitis again. Really? It was like flicking a switch, and it, and I, I so I'm assuming it was this, you know, 
territory yeah. battle with a neighborhood cat because he, he didn't really fit the other kind of classic criteria um you know he could come and go as he pleased like i say he was in good health he was quite a lean quite a lean cat um mm -hmm. but I, I assume it was that just purely because it because it stopped and there's just one other thing that i think from that point of view because i often do speak to to kind of if i've got clients with this is kind of owner counseling about this this problem really early on i think is, is so important because having been on the owner side of it, it it's very frustrating it really is that's the point though i think it, this is i think what we started you know it's still a frustrating condition yeah. And if there was a miracle cure, then it wouldn't be a frustrating condition anymore. So yeah. the fact it's still really frustrating is testament to the fact that it's we don't fully get it. And yeah. I think the problem when the answer, when you review the literature, like as of today, is there a golden bullet? 100% not. There's certainly do's and don'ts that we maybe know a bit more about, like the, the study about Metacam, some studies about Prazosin. But overall the data is still a bit like mm, not 100% sure what exactly the right thing to do is. The one thing that people are pretty much set on is the fact that the modification of environment, the behavioral element of things is really important. The problem with that is that's the hardest sell to clients, isn't it? Because if you can give them a pill, then that's easy. But when you're telling them that you have to actually change the number of litter trays, the feeding stations, the blah, 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 or just move house, then that's a harder, but that's yeah. a, that's always harder because that's more complicated for the, for you as the vet and also for the owner. Um, so it's still a tough thing to, to counsel owners through, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it's, it's just important. I think, I think you get one much better with these if, if you can, can have owners understanding that from you know from day one they're, they're less likely then to you know to be to be unhappy if it happens again and things and maybe have a greater understanding that it's it's not a quick fix there's not a magic wand and there's like you say there's not a magic a magic pill um it would be great if someone invented one because these poor cats it's it's really horrible As always, we want to say a massive thank you for listening. We really, truly appreciate your support. To find out more about VTX, head over to our website, which is www.vtx-cpd.com. We also uh, would love for you to check out what Inga's doing and find out more about her amazing organisation. Then please head to the show notes and we've put all the information you will need there. We also appreciate a little like, follow and share on our social media platforms. Next week, we're really excited to be joined by Carl Bradbrook, who is a specialist in veterinary anaesthesia. He is going to be chatting about his career in veterinary medicine and discussing all things tramadol related. So as always, thank you again. And for me and Karen, we will see you next week. Mm -hmm.